Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny with Jen and Kristen. I'm Jen. And hey. I've got Kristen here with me. How are you doing, hey, Kristen? It's a nice Tuesday here. We were just talking before we hopped on. It was like 50 degrees this morning, and now it's it's going up to 80. So gotta love October 80 degree days. I know. Sunny. I love that fall weather. It's yeah. so nice. I was reading in the news this morning. So we did last week's episode about the cost of living in Manhattan and all the startup economics of starting a job in New York City. But did you see... That in San Francisco now, because all of the young tech workers who are coming to entry-level jobs in tech can't afford the rents in San Francisco, mm-hmm. which have actually come down, by the way, yeah. but because they can't afford the rents there, they now have these living quarters that are basically like, you know, in Japan, they have those business hotels that are like mm-hmm. cubbies, you know, that you slide mm-hmm. into. Yeah. So for 700 or $800 a month in Palo Alto in San Francisco, you can rent a four-foot-tall cubby. That you live in. Wait, and how is it four feet tall? There are cubbies in the wall. That's what you live in. It's just a twin bed in a cubby and that's it. And there's communal living space and communal bathrooms, but you're renting a cubby for $700 a month with like 20 of your new and best friends. You can't friends. even stand up in the No, cubby? you can't stand up in it. It's just a bed. It's just a, again, like those Japanese hotels. This is horrifying. Just a bed in the wall for $700 a month. That's the most depressing thing I think I've ever heard. Well, remember when they were like, we have shipping container apartments and everyone was like, oh God, that's terrible. And now we've all adjusted and we're like, oh, what like it's socially and climate change, economically responsible living quarters, a shipping oh container gosh. is. And now we're like, cubbies. Oh my gosh. I mean, if you're going to do something, make it a dorm. Effectively a dorm, but the real estate is so expensive that a dorm would be too costly. A dorm would cost you the same as an apartment. Seriously, it's a bit, but it's funny because some of the tech workers they were interviewing were like, I'm surrounded by the best and brightest. So it is like a little incubator (laughs) for like these bright young tech minds living in their cubbies. Oh my gosh. Um, I know. So if you think New York City is bleak, that's... Well, (laughs) did I tell you how my brother Brian was trying to argue that he wanted to move from New York to San Francisco because he was going to save money there? And I was like, "Um, I don't think that those economics make sense. I don't think that's the case. Although he's not wrong. I mean, now the average cost of a studio apartment guess, in San yeah. Francisco is $3,000. That's lower than it is in New York City. If you are I guess that's there. true. <laughs> I mean, that's true. But I feel like with everything, there's always, you have to have the overlay of the FX. Although we have established in the last episode that New York is probably more expensive than San Francisco, but mm-hmm. it's obviously not cheap there either. It's just like, they're sort of all just expensive options where Correct. it's Correct. just unfortunate. Um, so today we wanted to do a and a episode for you guys. We've got a bunch of awesome interviews lined up. So we like to intersperse a couple of Kristen and Jen episodes in there. So you don't get too overwhelmed by the presence of all these strangers on the podcast. <laughs> so we've compiled four questions from you guys. And you guys are great, by the way. We get questions from you all the time. And then we put out little prompts for more questions. And we get awesome questions from that too. So just know that we're constantly keeping a library of all your questions. And we try to keep Q&A episodes either thematic or we try to balance it out. And Mm -hmm. so today that's what we're doing. Kristen's got two really technical questions that we're going to speak to. And I'm going to speak to two more philosophical, if you will, questions uh, and not try to teach you guys any new concepts. I was going to answer the question, what are exotic options today? So 
you're welcome that mm-hmm. your brain can take a little bit of a break in between Kristen's two very technical pieces. So Kristen, why don't you go ahead? What's your first question? Well, yeah. So I actually want to take a step back. So we've been starting to try to populate our YouTube channel with some of our podcast Q&A episodes. Please subscribe. Yes, please subscribe if you have not already. And what's great about that is a lot of the stuff that we talk about here, there's sometimes equations that go along with it that I can kind of try to map out, but you can't necessarily see it. So what's nice is, again, you can go actually see what the equations are. But we actually got a response to a couple of those. We had some comments and actually some that had very valid criticisms and others that were a little bit, I don't know, had us scratching our head a little bit. So we- Perplexing. Perplexing, I think, to say the least. But so we basically want to go through and address some of the criticisms and also get into some of the questions. And hopefully it kind of opens up some interesting conversations about other types of analyses. So the first question I'm going to get into is a question on optimal capital structure. So like, what is the right amount of debt and equity? And to review, why do we care about the capital structure that a company has? So one analysis that is very common that you do in investment banking or any kind of fundamental analysis, if you're trying to value a business, is the discounted cash flow analysis. And that is literally nothing more than you project out the unlevered free cash flows a company is going to generate in the future, and you discount those cash flows back to today before adding them up. Now, the discount rate that we use is something called the WEC. So in a past Q&A, I answered a question someone asked, which was like, how does increasing debt impact the WAC? And essentially gave a very simplified explanation, walking through when you increase debt, it lowers the cost of capital up to a certain point, and then it sort of tips over into causing the cost of capital to go up. Yes, Jed. What does the WAC stand for again, for those who may not remember? WAC is Weighted Average Cost of Capital. So that is a combination of the actual cost of capital, meaning cost of debt, cost of equity, and the weightings of each of them, right? What percentage of the business is funded with debt and what percentage of the business is funded with equity. So now if we just think theoretically, well, if you can lower your cost of capital, guess what? If you lower your discount rate from a valuation standpoint, it means that the value of the business should go up. So that's why in theory, everyone should want the lowest cost of capital possible. As part of that video, I made a probably relatively non-controversial statement, which was that debt is cheaper than equity. And again, there were some valid criticisms, but as I said, one that was a little surprising. So let's actually start with the first criticism, which was I didn't mention that the cost of debt is tax deductible. So that's something that just goes without saying. So for a US company, you can deduct the interest that you pay on your debt. So therefore, if you're actually looking at what is the cost of debt, you take the cost of debt and multiply it by one minus the tax rate. So just to put some numbers around this. So if your cost of borrowing is 7%, right? You can go in the market, you can raise debt for a 7% interest rate and the tax rate of your company is 25%. Then your after-tax cost of borrowing is that 7% times one minus 25% or five and a quarter. This, by the way, is the case up to a certain point. So prior to 2017, you could take tax deductions on any amount of interest. So in theory, your tax savings would only go away when the business stopped being profitable. If the company is not earning any money, they're not going to be paying those taxes. Now, as part of the 2017 tax bill, this, by the way, was the same bill that eliminated SALT taxes for us individual taxpayers in high-tax states. So last week, we talked about how if you're in a high-tax state and you're paying, call it 10%, so $100, you're paying 10 now you're still going to get taxed on the federal level off of that 100 instead of previously would be like taxed on 90. I think one analogy we can draw is when you have a mortgage, right? You mm. can deduct the interest that you pay on your mortgage up yeah. to a certain amount. Yes. So it's, yes. it's kind of a similar concept. Exactly. And actually, I think in that tax bill, it lowered. That lowered. Yes. Yep, the, the 2017 tax reforms lowered the all-in amount from $1 million to 750000 But it also limited the tax deductions that companies could take on their interest. So this phased in with time. So from basically 2018 to 2021, the limit was you could only deduct interest in the amount of up to 30% of EBITDA. And then in 2022, it dropped to 30% of EBIT. So just to give you some numbers, your EBITDA is always going to be higher than your EBIT because it is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So if your EBITDA is 150 and your EBIT is 100 and you can only take 30%, well, previously you were able to take, what's 30% of 150? 50? Yeah. (laughs) You were able to take $50 million of interest deductions. Now you can only take, call it $30 million of interest deductions. So as we get into higher rates, that potentially starts to be something that you think about, especially when you are doing a leverage buyout or even doing some of these cost of capital analyses. Okay. Now that we've established that you get tax benefits with debt, I want to address now 
how does increasing debt impact the cost of capital? So it is worth noting that there are competing theories of capital structure out there. So the traditional theory says that there is, in fact, an optimal capital structure and the value can be created by changing the mix of debt and equity. There is also something called the pecking order theory, uh, which basically says that financing comes from these sources. You have the internal funds, so retained earnings, so the mm-hmm. money that you're actually generating yourself. You have debt and then you have new equity. And that in general, companies should prioritize their financing, starting with the internal financing, then go into debt, and then lastly, raising equity as a last resort. The argument for this is that a company, if they issue new equity, investors believe that managers think that the company is overvalued and are taking advantage of this overvaluation. And this is something that I definitely saw in theory working in convert. So I, I will talk about that in a few minutes. And then there is the Modigliani and Miller theorem. These are two men, by the way, who won the Nobel Prize in 1985. Their theory was that in a zero tax world, as you increase the debt, the cost of equity also rises, which means that you can't increase the value of the business by changing the capital structure. Mm. Now, they later went on to revise that theory because they said that was in a world with no taxes. In a world with taxes, increasing your debt would, in fact, lead the value of the firm to go up because you're getting those tax savings. So Mm -hmm. in all these theories, there are going to be some assumptions that make it not all that reasonable. So for example, in the, I'm just going to call it MM, the the last one. So that theory ignored the cost of bankruptcy, which could obviously be be very real. They also ignore the cost of raising debt versus equity. And in general, the cost to raise equity is more. So just to give you some numbers here, fees on IPOs are usually in the six to 7% range. So that's Mm -hmm. obviously quite high. Now raising debt is going to be much lower. So for fun, I looked at what Meta paid on their 2023 $10 billion bond issuance. And the fees range from 12 to 40 basis points. So I just like looked Mm. at the prospectus, saw what the underwriting discount was, poof, I got the fees. So it can be starkly different. There's also the argument that debt adds discipline to a company. And look, the cost of debt doesn't typically rise linearly. From what I saw, it was usually more like a step function. So Mm -hmm. like the cost is going to go up as you hit different tipping points. Mm -hmm. So obviously all these theories are like the academia of it all. And then there's reality. With that said, it is worth noting that if you are talking about the WAC and that theory, the I'm going to call it MM again. Yes. (laughs) If it holds true, right? It means that you can't create or destroy value by changing the capital structure. And this is sort of a more modern theory, if you will. And I I personally always like that because it's sort of like from my engineering background, it's like energy can't be created or destroyed. Or actually, sorry, let me rephrase. You can't create it by just changing the capital structure until you Mm -hmm. incorporate taxes. And the reason for this, if you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, why is that the case? It's really just sort of a value transfer. It's from the taxpayers Mm -hmm. to the company. So that's something just to be aware of. So now that we've talked debt, now let's talk about equity. The cost of equity represents not only dividends that investors get, but also capital appreciation. The way that it's often calculated in academia is you use something called CAPM or the capital asset pricing model, where you take the risk-free rate plus the levered beta times the market risk premium. And we've obviously talked about this in great detail. Another way that you theoretically could estimate it is using something called the dividend growth model, which basically takes your dividend per share over the market value of the equity times the growth rate. This is not something I saw as much personally in the real world, but it is a theory Mm -hmm. out there. What I did see, however, this is when I was working in converts, is we would have to create these cost of capital graphs all day when we would go and have meetings with the CFOs of companies who were interested in raising converts. And what we were trying to do was show the trade-offs between the cost of debt, the cost of equity, and then converts. Mm -hmm. And so what we would do is we would have these graphs. On the y-axis of the graph, we would show what is the cost of capital. On the x-axis, we would show the compound annual growth rate, also called the CAGR, for the company over, say, like the next five years. Because Mm -hmm. as you think about how expensive is your equity, well, it really depends on how that equity is going to grow with time. Mm -hmm. And so we would create these charts. Your cost of debt would be just like a horizontal line. The CAGR has no effect on it. The rate is what it is. Equity, on the other hand, was like perfectly correlated. And so you had a 45 degree line, Mm -hmm. a line with a slope of one. And then we would throw some converts on there where your convert, it's going to look like debt before a certain CAGR, and then it starts to look like equity. Below a certain premium, you've issued debt, and then you've issued equity at a premium. So the moral of that story, though, is that the cost of your capital is going to depend on what you think is going to happen to the share price or what does happen Mm -hmm. to the share price. Companies, they decided, you know, I'm looking at this. I think my share price is going to be crappy. (laughs) Well, maybe issuing equity looks like a good move. Whereas Uh like if you think your equity is going to be hitting it out of the park in the next five years, well, you're going to want to obviously be issuing debt because it's a lot cheaper. 
Are you reaching for capital in a time of stress or in a time of stress? Yeah. Probably yeah. what influences that decision. I mean, and then there's also the other added elements, what happens to your earnings per share. There can be different accounting treatments for some of these things. So that can also obviously play a role. Mm-hmm. But in the comments that we got, there was one that truly confused me. And I, I sent this to Jen because I got this comment that said, great video, but your assumptions are wrong. Right now, the cost of equity is lower than the cost of debt for investment grade companies. And to me saying that is like saying the sky is not blue. I was like literally confused. I sent this to Jen. And I'm like, I don't even know how to reply to this because I feel like we're talking two different languages. So the reason for this is debt is more senior in the capital structure. What that means is that debt holders are going to get paid their interest before any dividends are paid to equity holders. They also were first in line in recovery in a bankruptcy. Bed Bath & Beyond went bankrupt earlier this year. The equity holders likely got more or less wiped out. Lenders can expect anywhere up to 70, 80, 90% recovery. Yeah, so there can be great recovery. There can be great recovery. Actually, average recovery for a first lien loan is 76%. Mm-hmm. Average recovery for a bond is 40%. That's, by the way, from Fitch's bankruptcy database. So it does mean that if you are a company going bankrupt, the lenders are going to get money back. It's less risky for them. They're not going to demand as high a return as an equity investor. Mm -hmm. Just to say like off the bat, I was like, well, this doesn't sound right. So I was trying to understand where he was coming from. And he said, well, the way that we calculate the cost of equity is we take the earnings per share over the share price. For those of you not familiar, that is the inverse of something called the P.E. ratio, which we've talked about before. We talked about on our valuation fundamentals. Exactly. Two or three episodes ago. It's essentially looking at how much is an investor paying for $1 of expected earnings in the company. Mm -hmm. Again, I was trying to figure out, like, is this in some way related to, like, the dividend growth model, but it ignores the dividend pay ratio, it ignores the growth rate, and it's not really the cost of equity. So I think what this person was trying to say, or I think what the analysis was, I could be wrong, but this is how, in theory, I have seen this sort of analysis used, is you can look at something called relative PEs. Mm -hmm. And this is very common in the mergers and acquisition space. It's oftentimes more used if you have a company buying another company, you can look at the relative PEs of where the company's stocks trade and say, oh, okay, this deal is going to be accretive to earnings per share, right? Because EPS is often used as a proxy for what's going to happen to the share price. EPS goes up, the share price goes up, EPS goes Mm -hmm. down, the share price goes down. If a deal is accretive and it means that EPS is going up, it means that in theory, you expect the share price to go up. So you actually can do that, funny enough, using both the PE of equity, which is what we've all gotten used to. And then there's also this concept called PE of cash or PE of debt, where you basically take one over the after-tax cost of debt. And so it almost seems like what this guy is doing is instead of taking the PE, taking one over the PE and saying, which of those costs is higher? So putting some numbers around this, okay, let's pretend back to our prior example. You have a company with a cost of debt of 7% and a 25% tax rate. Right. We've already established that gets you a five and a quarter after tax cost of debt. Mm-hmm. Now, pretend that company's equity is trading at 20 times. Okay. Well, if I take one over that, one over 20 is 5%, and I compare it to five and a quarter, well, that means that if I issue equity, it's going to be less dilutive to my earnings per share than, than issuing debt would be. Mm-hmm. So if all I cared about is what happens to my earnings per share, then yeah, I mean, using that as a back of the envelope calculation to understand which is going to be more creative or dilutive to my earnings per share, you could use that. Now, that's the only thing that I was able to come up with. And by the way, if you were doing a deal, you oftentimes might say, should I be issuing debt or equity? Again, looking at the PE of cash versus the PE of your stock. But the thing is, is that that's not actually a cost of equity. It's literally just seeing how does it affect your earnings per share. And the decision that a company makes on the financing in that case is different than the valuation analysis that they might do. Like you that you're using run, the whack for that you're using the whack for that exactly. these formulas are yeah, yeah, yeah. going into. Exactly. So we were talking about just the whack in general, the theory that lowering your whack is going to increase the valuation of the business. Mm-hmm. Earnings per share is a different metric. It mm-hmm. is not a business metric. The EPS is an equity value metric. And it also has accounting thrown in there. It's just a different analysis. So hopefully that was helpful. And I wanted to just address that question because I thought brought up some interesting points that we were able to get to. And And if you are someone who is doing this in practice day in, day out at an investment bank, and you have a different methodology that you're using, we're all ears, but we fail to see how the basic arithmetic of this equation would be any different. And we even walked through a couple of real life examples, Kristen and I, just trying to sort through the math. (laughs) 
And the math doesn't math, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know everything. Jen doesn't know everything. And Again, we also thinking. said last week mm-hmm. that Park Ave was the dividing yeah. line down the center of Manhattan. When right. <laughs> we, we do <laughs> obviously not, make mistakes. Okay. Yeah, we make yeah, mistakes. We so I am totally, but like sometimes I get questions and I'm literally sitting there like reverse engineering, trying to be like, okay, where did this come from? And is there any way to kind of get there? So we'll have one more of those a little bit later, but <laughs> and <laughs> in the meantime. <laughs> when you guys send us questions like that, please, we are not being testy. If we're like, hey, what data are you looking yeah. at? We literally want to know. We are happy to revise anything we're saying here right. if proven wrong. Yeah. So please bring us everything, but don't just be like, you're wrong. And then I know. Run that's, away that always like, drives me crazy. Because we're like, why? And yeah, we're yeah. agonizing over it for days. Yeah, yeah. Like, what like, tr- like, what, like, what is drinking tea leaves? Right. And there will be so many instances in the world of the financial services industry where there is what is said and taught in you called it School. academia, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And what's done in practice. Much of what we know and understand may be from the academic standpoint. And if there are practices being put in place that we're not familiar with, share those with us. Like, let right, us right, right. know. We try yeah. to have our ear to the ground as best we can, but finance is always changing in real time. So right. please share those things with us. We are an open book and we're always open to revising things. But when the math ain't math, and we got to try to yeah. interpret what you're telling us. And that yeah. can be a challenging uh, task. So no, Kristen, I think you did a great job with that. So switching gears a little bit over to the world of sales and trading, we got some great questions on Instagram yesterday. And one of them was, how do you prepare for a sales and trading or any kind of markets-based interview? And first of all, if you haven't listened to episode seven yet, we shared a ton of specifics on interviews, both from the investment banking division and the sales and trading division of a bank. So definitely go back and listen to that episode. I will say it's one of our earlier episodes. And you know how it yeah, is. Yeah. If you have created any kind of content in your life, your first tries are totally cringe when you go back and listen to them. And I mean, we're still early on in this process. This is only episode, what, like 29? We're still learning this. Mm-hmm. So bear with us. But there is some pretty good intel in that episode. We talked, though, in a lot of broad strokes about things and shared some experiences from our personal interviews. Let's get into some of the more details about how to really kill it in the sales and trading interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for starters, your prep for that interview is going to depend somewhat on your background. If your resume says that you've been running a mini hedge fund out of your parents' garage since you were five and you've got a triple major in finance, stats, and Python, your interview is going to go very differently than mine as an English major who was very, I made no bones about the fact that I hadn't done math since high school. If someone was interviewing me and they want to ask me about any one of those things, it would have been a very short conversation. The level to which you will be grilled about a specific product or market knowledge is going to vary based on the content of your resume. But regardless of your background, just like any test, there's going to be questions that are designed to be layups for you. (laughs) And there's going to be questions that are going to be designed for you to not be able to answer. Okay. And it's not to torture you. It's not to make you squirm. Sometimes it is. (laughs) Well, they want to see how you work whilst squirming, right? Yeah. Yeah. So those are designed to see how you work through a problem, how you perform under pressure, and how you handle a problem that you probably don't know what the solution is to. So we've talked about brain teasers in the past. Those are really popular in sales trading and any kind of market-based interview because they're designed to test exactly that skill set. Definitely be prepared to work through some brain teasers. I think we're going to like try to put some up on our social media. We did a couple way back in the day, and I think we should share some more. They're fun. I'm terrible at them, especially the probability-based ones, which are really, really popular, especially with traders, because so much of what you're doing is assessing the likelihood of an outcome. You might also be asked to work through some basic arithmetic. I Mm -hmm. talked about this experience. (laughs) Um, I was asked to do that, and I totally bungled it. I still got the job. But to this day, I now ask my second grader in the car on the way to school every day. I'm like, what's 17 times 19 to like get him thinking in that way. So for the record, her second grader is also like a budding genius, like level on the level of the gen. So good kid. He's he's a smarty pants. But no matter what, regardless of your background, regardless of your math skills, you need to somehow demonstrate an interest in the market. And how are you going to do that? And that's not something that most people in their day-to-day life, if you're in college, okay, you're not between keg stands going like, hey, what do you think about monetary policy? The the old school thing was always go read the Wall Street Journal, go read the Financial Times. I 
actually think that both of those publications, if you haven't been immersed in that culture all day long, can be like a little dry. Mm -hmm. I actually really prefer Bloomberg Business Week. And I think everybody in this country should subscribe to that magazine. It is so good. All of their publications, I think they have really nailed the format of very dense, but short and easily accessible. Like you don't need yeah. to know one iota of financial terminology to read Bloomberg's magazines. They will have like short, dense market insight articles. And then they'll have longer like think pieces that are related to market issues in a lot of way. And they also have the pursuits section, which is like lifestyle and culture and everything. And it's written from the standpoint of either someone who's in financial services industry insider or who is at least like adjacent to that field. So I just think it's really great. And speaking of Bloomberg, by the way, I'm sorry, I hung up on Bloomberg, but we just found out this morning from one of our social media followers that NYU at their student library has a Bloomberg terminal. They said so, they have four. I mean, that's incredible. I really hope more libraries at college campuses have those because that's an amazing tool. Now you do have to learn almost a new language, mm -hmm. not like a full coding language or anything like that to interact with it. But I mean, you could do a quick Google search of like Bloomberg, how to input things into a Bloomberg and the keyboards are labeled with yeah. all the information that you need to know. So you don't have to memorize Excel short codes or anything like that. It's way easier than unless that. You have, you unless you have a Bloomberg anywhere, but you're not going to have it if you're using the terminal at your college. <laughs> Absolutely not. So anyways, okay. As you start reading about the markets, you'll start to notice that what's written about the markets comes back to a few central core themes. And one of those is always going to be monetary policy. What have central banks been doing recently? What are they doing right now? What are they telegraphing that they are going to do in the future? And what economic developments are likely to influence and change that path in the near term? And listen, by the way, I took exactly one econ class in college and it didn't talk about any of this. And I slept through it because it was really boring. You don't need to know any economic theory other than basic common sense to understand any of this. But no matter what area of the markets you are interested in or think you want to work in or anything like that, you can always come back to this theme of monetary policy because it touches everything. So the U.S., just to review, our central bank is called the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. And where they set their overnight target rate impacts everything. It impacts borrowing costs for individuals and corporations. It impacts the value of the dollar. It impacts growth. It impacts inflation based on the direction of monetary policy. You can make an educated guess about whether anything is going to go up or down. I mean, I could use my projections about the Federal Reserve to talk about like the mating habits of an endangered toad. Okay. Like it is that central to how everything in the world works. What you really want to know is how is it going to impact the value of a company, their stock price, right? How is it going to impact bond prices? How is it going to impact the value of a currency? Things like that. Getting started learning about central bank policy, specifically U.S. central bank policy, you need to know at least three things. You need to know one, who the chairman of the Federal Reserve is. And Kristen famously, <laughs> famously bought that on one of her interviews and it still haunts her to this day. You need to know what the federal funds target range currently is. And you need to have read enough to know the recent tone out of the Fed. Is it hawkish or dovish? And for those of you who aren't familiar with those terms, I mean, just think about the difference in the birds, right? A hawk is like this militant animal. It's very fierce. It refers to monetary policy that's leaning towards hiking rates to rein in inflation. And think of a dove, right? A dove is like the global symbol of peace. So with respect to monetary policy, that's like, oh, let's just let everybody borrow money for free. Like prices are going to go up. Everything's going to be great. We're all going to be happy. If you have a good handle on the recent history of monetary policy, like where we are in the cycle, and some idea of what the Fed has been saying recently – you should be able to go into any interview. And if someone asks you a question, sounds somewhat knowledgeable about a theme. So you should be prepared to say, for example, hey, I think the Fed is actually going to raise rates at their next meeting, or I think they're going to pause, or I think they're going to reverse course and lower rates. And here's three reasons to back it up. And the great news is no one's going to ever know if you're right or wrong. If you just have three reasons to back it up and you can point to, hey, I read this article in Bloomberg. I read this article in the Wall Street Journal and I read this article in Financial Times and I didn't read them on the train ride into this interview. If you can intelligently identify three reasons for that thesis, you can demonstrate an interest in the markets right there and be able to have an intelligent conversation with your interviewer. When I was preparing for my first sales and trading interviews, someone at my school was like, oh, if you go into one of these interviews, you should have a stock pick in mind. Okay. Let me tell you something. That is the worst conceivable advice. If I'd been given that advice today, I don't know anything about stocks now. I'd probably be like, everyone's talking about NVIDIA. 
AI seems to be something that people care about. I guess you should buy NVIDIA. I would crumble the second I was asked a follow-up question that because I know nothing about that company. And by the way, neither do you, even if you think you know something about that company, because guess what? Have you built a model for that company? Do you know who the holders of the shares are? Have you been living and breathing that stock and watching the price action every single day? Do you understand the nuances of AI and the product they're you even selling know what they do? and the business yeah. model and all the things that go into that to just be like, ooh, AI, NVIDIA, yay. Cool. Like, yeah, exactly. I, it's going to be, oh, I read about it and Correct. I know the share price is doing well and everyone says to buy. Don't no. bring that into an interview. Again, no. bring that into your cocktail party conversation. Talk about that. But don't bring that into an interview. But- if my interviewer asked me my view on NVIDIA and they were like, oh, what do you think about this stock? Knowing I know nothing about that stock other than what a layperson knows. Well, I can always come back to my monetary policy view. I can say, I know nothing about this company, but I might speculate that given recent hawkish Fed speak that suggests we're not quite ready for a regime shift yet, and we may remain in a higher rate environment longer than we expected, tech companies that have massive amounts of cash are likely to outperform other sectors with more balance sheet intensive operations and high borrowing needs or cost of materials. So now I sound like a thoughtful person who is acknowledging room for growth because I've said I don't know anything about this darn company, but I've demonstrated a grasp of fundamental concepts and how the markets work and are interrelated. If that same interviewer asked me for my view on, I don't know, the commercial real estate market, I might say that same Fed speak is likely to keep borrowing costs high. So that's probably going to lead commercial real estate to continue to suffer. And guess what? I can look around the room at the trading floor and see if there's a ton of people on the trading floor and theorize that, hey, what new demands are going to bring people into commercial real estate when we're seeing massive amounts of retail stores close their ground floor retail for various reasons? If they asked me for my view on credit in the financial services sector, I could say, well, in a high rate environment, that should be good for net interest margin. But guess what? Banks are only going to be able to pay out zero on deposits for so long when depositors, after they saw what happened in the spring with the regional banking crisis, can go take that money and invest it in relatively low risk, high yielding money market funds. So mm -hmm. anything you ask me, anything you throw at me, because I can always come back to that central monetary policy thesis, I can sound thoughtful about, even if I know nothing about the sector, which I don't know anything about any three of those sectors. <laughs> so I'm making it up all on the fly, but because I have a secure foundation, it gives me the framework to logic through anything I might get asked. And even better, people always ask us, well, what questions should I ask in my interviewer? Why don't you ask your interviewer what their view is on monetary policy? Maybe you can go even for extra credit and see if you can dig up what that firm's economist is saying about the direction of where monetary policy is headed. You could say, hey, my Morgan Stanley interviewer, I know that your economist actually thinks that rates are going to go down next year. I'm curious what is leading them to that conclusion when all the recent Fed speak that I've seen is so hawkish? And have a thoughtful conversation with your interviewer. That will demonstrate a true interest in the markets. And you are not only going to sound smart, but you're going to sound like you're prepped for the job. Because guess what? Yeah. If you're working as a trader, if you're working as a salesperson, if you're working as a researcher, you could get a call at any second on the fly from a client who's going to ask you to basically come up with an investment thesis like that with mm -hmm. zero preparation. And if you're well, a trader, mm -hmm. you need to have yeah. that investment thesis constantly going in the background and be adjusting that and refining that and questioning your assumptions because that's going to determine how long you hold your trades. So, yeah, yeah I was going to say, I mean, so true story. We got a message from someone who was a freshman who was applying to, they have this investment club. They can manage, I think, some amount of money. It was like, $100,000. It was $100,000 of their college endowment. And as part of this, they have to put together an investment thesis on a certain company. And so if you were someone who like has done that and you did a lot of rigorous analysis, you've been investing in a couple of stocks over the last four years as you're heading into some of these interviews, that's where you might be able to speak to something and you can actually show what you have learned. But again, if that is not you, and that's probably not most people, that's where I would go back to like Jen's philosophy of I need to understand these critical things that move markets and then I can think my way through it. I would I feel also like say you can go through that one stock spiel with one interviewer. You can't do it with all 10. I think if you have thoughtful conversations with the interviewer and if you really do know this one stock really well and you've been investing it for X number of years and at that point maybe you're investing a few other stocks. You can talk about your experience there. I think that also would show like a real interest in the markets, in what's going on. So I think that something like that would be fantastic. But for someone who would be in Meyer Gen shoes, where it's like, you're not living and breathing this stuff every day. You don't necessarily have your own trading account. 
And even if you do, there's a difference between being like, oh, look, Tupperware's a meme stock. I'm going to invest in that because I see everybody else is on Reddit or mm -hmm. GameStop 2020. I made a killing on GameStop. Okay, that might have worked then. It's probably not going to work now. So if all you can talk to is like, I bought GameStop in 2020 and I made a million dollars, that's awesome. That's called luck. That's not understanding what you need to be doing on the trading floor. Correct. It's a different that has thing. nothing to do with generating returns for the shareholders mm -hmm. exactly. or helping your clients make money, which exactly. is your day to day or job. making markets. So if this is something you're passionate about and you actually understand the fundamentals and you can speak to that, great. But most of the time, most people probably would do a lot better understanding some general principles and then being able to talk through that. It also shows how your brain works, which is a huge part of what an interviewer is looking for in sales and trading. They want exactly. to basically make sure that you're able to logic your way through things. No, Jen, I think that was like such great advice. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the next question I'm going to tackle is another technical question on circularity and models. Um, I've never been so excited. <laughs> I'm sure, Jen. <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk about circularity and models, where it comes from, why it's needed, why maybe you can get around it, and then how to deal with it. The genesis of this question is that it wasn't actually a question on my social media. It was a criticism. I put a video up on basically just turning iterations on in Excel. The reason is that when you're building a three-statement model or like a leverage buyout model, which uses a three-statement model, you need iterations turned on because there is inherently circularity in the three-statement part of the model. So, the so what are was, iterations? So iterations, I'm going to start very basic. So let's pretend that you have a simple calculation in your spreadsheet. And the calculation has one cell with the number one, a second cell with the number one, and a third cell with a formula where it adds one plus one plus yourself, okay? If you do that calculation, if it calculates one iteration, that number is two. If it calculates two iterations, that number is four. If it calculates three iterations, that number is six. The number that's going to end up in your formula depends on how many times are you running this calculation. That is the mm -hmm. iteration. Now, right. this is an example of a formula that's going to go to infinity, right? There is uh -huh. no solution to this. It just goes Correct. to infinity. However, in these three statement models that we build in our just like projecting out the income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement, you are going to have a formula like this where it ultimately will converge in on a solution. It's almost like, you know, there's a formula, but you do this uh, infinite times. It's going to go to an actual value. You get close enough on the digits you of pi close, that you're like, mm -hmm. it's 3.1415. Exactly, right? like, exactly, exactly. Like the limit. Perfect. Yeah. So the comment was circularity is not good, though. It is used to truncate important calculations that you should be doing. I was just very confused by this. And so I want to explain why you need circularity in these three statement models. In defense of circularity. In defense of circularity. Now, so look, when you're building a three statement model, leverage buyout model, what you're trying to project out is the three statements of these companies, your income statement, your cash flow statement, and the balance sheet. So let's go through just the overall structure of these statements, specifically income statement and cash flow statement, because that's what we care about the most. Your income statement, and we talked about this in a prior episode as well, but I'm going to review it. The income statement, the goal of this is to take your revenues that the company is generating by selling whatever product is that they sell. You then subtract all their expenses. You subtract your cost of goods sold, your SG&A. You also have non-cash expenses, by the way. So depreciation, amortization, stock-based compensation, interest, taxes, it gets you to net income, right? That is your profitability. Now, when you set this model up, it is worth noting that you usually are going to leave holes for parts that you can't calculate yet. So if you're setting this up, you actually can't calculate interest yet because you don't know what your debt and your cash are. Those are like the last things we can figure out because you don't know what that is until you figure out what your operating cash flow is, your investing cash flows, and Good. your other financing decisions, et cetera, et cetera. When you have that income statement, the bottom of the income statement then goes to your cash flow statement. The cash flow statement basically starts at the top. There's three sections. You have your operating section, your investing section, and your financing section. So the operating section basically takes your net income and it reconciles it to how much cash did the company actually generate from the business. Mm -hmm. The income statement is like pure accounting. So mm -hmm. you are going to have potentially sales where a company has sold something, but they haven't received cash yet. Mm -hmm. Or they might have received cash, but they haven't actually booked the sale. So for example, Jen, you scheduled your flights. You have paid, I don't know, JetBlue or whoever you're flying with. They got cash. American. They haven't gotten a sale until they actually fly the plane. So that would mean they got cash, but they, you can't count that cash. On the flip side, you could have a situation where this lawyer, he's going to do work for us, but it's going to take him time to send us the bill. So he would book the sale, theoretically, mm -hmm. when he actually does the work. He gets the cash and we pay the invoice. There is this mismatch, right? So the income yep. statement represents more of the accounting. The cash flow statement is the cash. 
So the top of the cash flow statement basically converts your net income to the change in cash on the operational side. And then you have your investing. Now, if you take your operating cash flow, your investing cash flow, you add it together, that is the free cash flow you know have that you can play with to do financing decisions, to Yay. take your, you could take that cash and let's pretend it's a private company, right? Just to make mm -hmm. things simple. So if you have a private company, if you have a deficit, you're going to have to probably borrow some kind of money. So you have a credit mm -hmm. card, you might borrow money on your credit card. Or again, if you're a company, you have commercial paper, you have a revolving credit facility, you're going to borrow some debt. If you have a surplus, you have excess cash, you could pay down your debt, or you could start to build cash. In both of those cases, let's pretend that you have, and I'm going to just make it simple, choose one, let's pick a deficit. You have a deficit, right, of let's call it $100 million, and now you borrow $100 million of debt. Well, guess what's going to happen? Back to our income statement. That's going to have additional interest expense, which means you're going to have lower net income, which means you're going to have lower free cash flow, which guess what? Means you need to borrow a little bit more. You borrow a little bit more, it's going to increase your interest a little bit and around and around and around this goes. Now, mm -hmm. there is going to be a solution. Like you, you do this, like your model set up, it's all set up the right way. You run the iterations. It's going to converge on a solution. But that's why you need the circularity because when you're doing these projections, the way that people typically model out how much are you borrowing or paying down because it's a function of what's everything else that you've done, you can't figure out what the borrowing or paying down is until you've done that other stuff and then it all becomes circular. So now that we've established that pretty much you need the circularity part, I do want to address that there are going to be a few ways to get around this. It does potentially make the model less accurate. And in some cases, if you have a sell-side research analyst, they are oftentimes going to be told from management, like management has their own internal projections. They know how much they're probably going to be paying down in debt or what they're borrowing. So they might know exactly what they think their interest expense is going you to be next year. You don't need the circularity in the model. You don't need, you, yeah, because your, your goal is to figure out how much are they going to be earning next quarter and next mm -hmm. year. And if mm -hmm. you know those numbers from management, you can hard code that in. So in that yeah. case, yeah, you, don't, you don't need the circularity because your model is going to be set up maybe a little bit differently. By the way, for those sell-side research analysts, getting the estimate like a few cents a share off, that matters. Those few cents a share matter. So mm -hmm. they're probably just saying, you know what? I'm taking the number from management. I'm putting it into my model. I'm good. Mm -hmm. And let me actually take a step back because the reason actually I should say that we are getting the circularity is because when we calculate interest expense, you typically calculate it off of the average balance of the debt over the mm -hmm. course of that year. Because the beginning balance is going to understate potentially, like if you're borrowing debt, it's going to understate how much your interest is that you're paying. So it's more accurate to say, I want to use the average. But on the flip side, in theory, you could not have circularity by calculating the interest expense off the beginning balance. But again, now it's not as accurate because mm -hmm. you've gotten rid of the fact that they've probably borrowed over the course of the year, their actual interest expense is going to be higher. So you can get around having circularity in it, but it's going to decrease the accuracy if you're not just taking the numbers that management gives you. Right, right, right. And by the way, when a banker is like working with a company, a lot of times they're going to be working with them and saying, well, what happens if we raise more debt? So they can't just take that number because there's a whole bunch of things that are changing. So it's, they're trying to solve for different things. Okay. Last thing is that circularity, while it is oftentimes necessary in models, it also is a giant landmine, <laughs> like waiting mm. to cause your model to blow up. I always used to joke when I would teach modeling classes that like, there's a few scary moments in life. One of these moments is when you go into your model that you spent like days working on and you have a little mistake and whatever, I don't know, you get a value error, you're like, oh, it's okay, undo. Guess what? That value error is everywhere because of the circularity in the model. The error gets trapped and it's just now like, you can't get rid of it. And so there are ways to fix that. It actually, it's, it's a very easy way to fix that. You basically just remove the circularity like you'd remove interest expense or any other part where there might be circularity. But it, when it happens, it is terrifying. Like uh. terrifying, like your heart sinks. You like want to cry if you don't know how to fix it because you're like, oh, I just undid the mistake, but the error is not gone. What do I do? Most people like close out of Excel and they open it up and then hopefully they've saved, saved recently. Again, it's a very easy thing to fix. And most people build models. They build models with something called a circ switch or a circ breaker. It's a little switch that you can tie to interest to turn it on and off. So anyway, it's very easy to get around. But in general, most models, if you're working in banking, are going to have circularity, period, full stop. So that was why when I got that comment, I was just so confused. <laughs> was again, like, so what? again, to the kind contributor who sent us that note, we'd love to understand where you're coming from and what you were trying to express. But Kristen, I think you, you gave us yeah. some really valuable nuggets in that. Um, again, it could be someone who was a sell-side research analyst, and in which case that makes complete sense. So that's yeah. why I wanted to put out there that like, yeah, I, I understand why some people might be anti-circularity, but for most bankers, because of the type of analysis they're typically doing, it's just kind of a default. It makes anyway. sense. 
Well, along the theme of trying to save yourself from giant mistakes, um, <laughs> the last question that we're going to talk about today came from Joey Lifts on Instagram. And he asked, uh, how do you know when to stop buying the dip? Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the expression buying the dip, this refers to any asset whose general price trend line has been going up, but then for some reason it suddenly declines. Again, let's go back to our favorite stock, NVIDIA, that we were talking about earlier. I mm -hmm. looked it up while you were talking because just for fun, because I don't really know anything about this stock. So that stock started the year around $150 a share. And by the end of August, it was trading up to like $500 a share. So clearly this was something with a pretty strong upward trend line. All right. Well, last month, and we're recording in October of 2023. So last month in September, that stock got all the way down to about $410 a share. It lost almost 20% of its value over the course of a few weeks. So that's an example of a good size dip. If you think NVIDIA is a great stock, you're like, this is an awesome buying opportunity, right? I believe that the general trend line is higher. Why am I not buying more? But how do you know when you're buying a dip? And how do you know when you're doing what we call catching a falling knife. And I think mm -hmm. that expression needs no explanation. Um, <laughs> but that's what we're talking about avoiding here. Like I said, I know nothing about NVIDIA other than the fact that it's bounced back up to like $450 a share. But I can give you some general philosophical guidelines about trading. So when you're trading, you have to always have an investment thesis that you developed. And it's kind of like I worked on the fifth grade newspaper that we had, the Woodland Times, okay? <laughs> and uh, this was like the height of my journalistic career. And I remember they taught you about the Ws, right? Who, what, where, when, why, okay? And you need to have a who, what, where, when, why for any investment thesis you have, any analysis that you do. So you've got who, which is who are the players in this market or in this particular asset class who are going to cause the changes that are going to bring about this price change. You've got what, which is obviously your asset class. Where, which is what specific price are you targeting buying or selling at? And then what price are you going to get out of the trade? When, how long do you want to hold this trade for? And why? Okay, what is the fundamental reason that this stock, this bond, this particular asset class is a buy or a sell? And there's two types of primary analyses that you're going to be synthesizing in order to do this. Now, we've talked a lot about the fundamental analyses with Kristen here. You're also going to be thinking about technical analyses. So let's go back to our fundamental analyses for a second. There's fundamental evaluation analyses for all asset classes, everything from real estate to treasuries to FX to options. You have to have a core investment thesis, like the ones that I was coming up with on the fly earlier for our sales and trading interview questions. And you need to be constantly re-examining that investment thesis in light of new information. we got to figure out what caused our price to drop in the first place. Was this move due to some new information specific to my asset, right? In the case of a company, did some new regulatory requirement mean that it's going to be more difficult for them to continue to operate the business model that they're using to make money? Did FX or commodities markets move in a way that makes it more expensive for them to get the raw materials that they need in order to build their product? In the case of, say, a corporate bond, we talked about this in, what was that, episode 23 with Harry. Is there a rumor that that company is going to be bought in an LBO and there's going to be tons of debt piled onto this company and that's causing credit spreads to blow out? That question of beta, how much is the change in my asset price explained by an overall move in the market and how much of it is changed by idiosyncrasies of the asset itself? Then we've got our technical analysis, okay? And we got to figure out who are the main owners of my asset? And are they liquidating if the price is going down? Are pension funds maybe rebalancing? And this has nothing to do with conviction. Is a foreign central bank selling my asset in order to raise US dollars? Was I someone who bought into a meme stock like you were talking about earlier? And now everyone's rushing to the exit and I'm the last person left holding the bag? Is or it six months after? Yeah, I was gonna say, is it six months after an IPO and there's the liquidity event and that's causing the share price to go down? I mean, again, that might actually be a great because time there's to buy. massive supply. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or in the opposite of a dip, is a short squeeze happening? Are a ton of people short and just a little bit of price action in the wrong direction is causing people to have Margin to liquidate calls. those positions, yeah. right? Exactly. Right. So these are all technical factors that have to be taken into account. And then beyond just those supply-demand type technicals, there are price action technicals that you can learn that may or may not serve as useful overlays to help you understand price action. We're not going to get into a ton of them because they are definitely controversial. My dad's favorite, my dad like loves to look at equities throughout the day. He loves the DeMarc indicator. And that's basically a sequential that's supposed to help you find an overextended price move in either direction. So you identify when something is likely to reverse and it serves as an indicator that you should then take a counter trend position. It was developed by this guy, Tom DeMarc, and he used to work at a pension fund actually. And it was his job 
to basically time the fund's investments in the market. And so he theorized the system of markers and price action that would signal a reversal. The way it works is like over a certain period, you have to have a certain number of days where the close price of an asset is lower than the lowest price that it hit two days prior. And then once you count down enough of those in sequence, then you get a buy signal or the opposite in the case of a sell signal. And if you don't fulfill the entire countdown within that time period, the process resets. But there are tons of technical markers like that that traders will follow. And I think a lot of them will at least take into account as they factor them into kind of the broader market technicals and that fundamental analysis. So anyways, listen, I'm not suggesting you have to start trading that way every day, but it's how you might start to formulate an opinion about an individual dip or a series of dips in the broader context of an asset's price action. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is you have to reconcile your original investment thesis, that who, what, where, why, when, with new information constantly. You have to factor in the realities of changing technicals. And you have to think about that broader price action in order to know whether or not you're buying the dip or catching a falling knife. Yeah. And so what this fundamentally gets to, Joey lifts, is that when you're trading, you have to have humility. Sometimes it can be so frustrating when you have this great idea, this great investment thesis, but for whatever reason, it simply isn't panning out. And the most valuable piece of advice that I ever got, and by the way, I'm not a trader. I do not have the emotional disposition for this. I could mm -hmm. never stomach this. But the best piece of advice I ever heard on the trading floor was the right trade at the wrong time is the wrong trade. And yeah. so you need to know when that's simply the case and you just need to get out of something or when your conviction holds enough water that you should go ahead and keep buying the dip. So I think those are words to live by. And I hope that helps Joey lifts yeah. <laughs> and everyone else. So thank you guys so much for listening. I hope this was a really helpful Q&A episode. And we've got some really great interviews lined up for you guys, like we said, mm -hmm. in the coming weeks. Please feel free to email us with any questions you have at questions at wallstreetskinny.com. And leave us and a five-star written yeah. review on any platform that you're listening to this podcast on. It helps us reach more people. And we're so grateful for you. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, and guys. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 